Signalling Forum podcast. My name is Peter Nash from the University of Queensland and today I'm talking to Professor Roy Fleischman from the Metroplex Clinical Research Centre and the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Centre. And today we're talking about his recent publication, The Effect of Discontinuation or Initiation of Methotrexate or Glucocorticoids on Tofacitinib Efficacy in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, a post hoc analysis. Welcome, Roy, and thank you for your time today. Can you give us just a bit of background on this study, what it was trying to aim, and what its objectives were? All right, thank you, Peter. So, as you know, there were uh, six phase three trials of tofacitinib in active RA in adults, uh, and many of those patients went into long term extensions. During the clinical trials, uh, as is usual, uh, patients could not alter their medication. They couldn't alter the dose of tofacitinib. They couldn't alter their dose of uh, background DMARD, uh, add a DMARD, uh, uh, discontinue a DMARD, uh, alter a dose of uh, steroids or add or discontinue steroids, which is in the trial. But the long-term extensions are set up primarily for safety. And efficacy is not really uh, a primary outcome of these trials. So when the long-term extensions were designed, and there were two of them, um, what was allowed was was that if patients were not doing well, uh, by physician discretion primarily, or patient discretion, uh, they could adjust the dose of tofacitinib, they could uh, add a DMARD, uh, they could uh, reduce or stop a DMARD, uh, they could uh, add steroids, or they could discontinue steroids. Uh, and this was part of the long-term extension. So when we looked at this, we realized that this may give a clue as to what could happen in the real world. So this is a post hoc analysis. It wasn't powered to show any of these changes, but we did want to know uh, what percentage of patients would uh, discontinue methotrexate, which was the typical background DMARD in these trials, um, what patients might add methotrexate, because some came in as monotherapy tofacitinib, um, and uh, just as importantly, uh, uh, what percentage of patients would be able to discontinue steroids uh, and what percentage of patients would require the addition of steroids. So that was the reason for this post hoc analysis. Okay, and I saw that the sort of mean duration of disease was nine plus years. Do you think we'll be able to um, use these results, even if they're hypothesis generating, in patients with earlier disease, or clearly we needed a, a formal study to answer that question? Well, I think that that's a really good question. Uh, I, I think that you can use this data to give you to give the practitioner an idea about what they can expect. So the, the results of this trial were that we saw that many of the patients who entered on monotherapy actually stayed on monotherapy uh, and uh, did quite well uh, clinically. But there were patients who stayed in the trial who still had moderate disease activity. Some even had severe disease activity. 
they were be much better with tocosinumab, but they really hadn't reached goal. And what, what this trial showed was that those patients uh, who were on monotherapy, uh, the addition of methotrexate was actually helpful uh, in a vast majority of them. Uh, and patients who were on tofacinib, either as mono or combo therapy, who had the addition of steroids, didn't get much better. So th this actually, to me, um, is in the same, uh, gives me the same conclusion that oral strategy uh, gave, which was a powered head-to-head -head trial, phase three, uh, with a very clear endpoint. And the clear endpoint was, uh, well, one of the arms was, was is monotherapy tofacinib um, uh, non-inferior to combination of tofacinib and methotrexate. And in that trial, although many patients with monotherapy did well, as they did in this long-term extension, there were patients who actually did better with a combination. So in a group of patients, they do do better. So I don't know if, if I personally would need another trial to assess this type of question, because I think that that question has actually been answered here, that if a patient is not doing well, the addition methotrexate can be helpful. Okay, and so that, there, there are a number of sort of caveats to it, because I thought a little unfortunate that the efficacy data at year three was only present in about half the patients. Do you right. think that do you think that'll change the results or the numbers are big enough for that not to make a huge difference? I think the numbers are really, really big enough. You, you have to remember these are seven, eight-year extension trials. And as you know, maintain patients in trials for seven or eight years you know, at a 300 sites worldwide is really, really, really tough. And um, there are a lot of Japanese, Roy, because that affects their background dose of methotrexate. The mean was fairly modest at 15. Um, right. One of the studies was Japan. Would, was SQL had a lot of Japanese or not so many? Uh, not so many. There weren't okay. that many Japanese in the trial. Okay, that's nice. But um, I, also the C-DI, do you think a lot of Americans actually do the C-DI in their clinics? Has it been taken up by most people? So the C-DI, if, if a rheumatologist does a metric where they examine joints, the C-DI is actually the preferred one. Okay, that's nice. We rarely do a DAS, a yeah. DAS debate. And the reason for that, as you know, is that the, the, the cutoffs for remission of low disease activity, the DAS, still leave a lot, still leave a lot of, could leave, leave a lot of disease activity. And the CDI is cleaner. So <laughs> my guess is about 20% of U.S. rheumatologists do a CDI. Very few do a DAS. Many do a, a rapid three, which of course, is a totally different metric, which doesn't really relate to clinical disease activity. There was a couple of other little surprises. Like I was surprised that only 12% of the methotrexate patients discontinued. I would have thought, you know, with half of them on methotrexate at baseline and only 20% of the steroid patients, it would have been nice with so many patients doing well, I would have expected many more to try and wean at least the steroids and, and maybe the methotrexate as well. but. The numbers weren't big. Yes, and I think that's true. But as I said, this is all at physician and investigative discretion. So, Peter, I know you spend most of your time uh, when you're not traveling uh, in the office seeing patients. 
And uh, it's not infrequent for me to suggest to a patient um, tofacinib and methotrexate doing, doing very well that they can reduce or maybe discontinue the methotrexate. And it's not unusual for the patient to say, am I having any problems with the methotrexate that you can see because I don't feel any. And I said, no, your labs are really perfectly fine. And I said, well, I'd rather not mess around. Um, okay. So because this was discretion, it really is more real world rather than having a protocol where it's mandated. If it were mandated, you saw the numbers of patients who were in CDI remission low disease activity for a sustained period of time, many more would have, uh, would have been tapered or discontinued you know, with, with, with both. But this is, you know, it's a patient-physician dialogue. Yep, very, it's much more real world. Um, the other nice finding was that the response in month three was usually maintained out to three years in those patients who were doing well. So right. any advice for the clinician, maybe we can use that, that if you haven't responded perhaps on combo by month three, you know, you're not going to do that well and you should seriously consider changing mechanisms of action or some other change. Yeah, so that's exactly what I do in practice. As you know, we've had tofacinib for over five and a half years in the U.S. I add tofacinib to methotrexate. Uh, and I look at month three. Month three is my key point. And at month three, the patient has to be substantially better. So what I do every patient, every visit in the practice is a CDI and a DOS 28 uh, ESR. And if the DOS is down by at least 1.2, but more importantly to me, because I think it's more clinically relevant, if the CDI is down by at least 60%, um, I'm, I'm fine. I'll continue the, 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 that combination until the patient plateaus. But if the patient doesn't reach that degree of benefit by three months, the chances are they won't. I think that this is what this is telling us, and therefore I'll, I'll change medication. So the change in medication could be changing mechanism of action, as you suggested. But if I happen to have a patient on a low dose of methotrexate, you know, let's say the, the mean here was, was 15, um, I may, may increase the methotrexate. Um, but yes, I'm gonna do something different at month three if the patient has not had a substantial response. So that's good practical advice for the clinicians. Um, the other funny thing that I noticed is quite significant percentage of patients on 10 milligrams BD, we don't have that dose available. What's your advice about um, someone not doing well stepping up to 10 BD, someone doing very well on 10 coming down to 5. Is there any chance in pro clinical practice to fiddle the dose like that? So that depends upon the insurance carriers and the availability of the extra doses of tofacinib. Uh, and the, we didn't look at this in a long-term extension. Um, but, but my site was part of this long-term extension, and we did have the ability to vary uh, from 5 to 10 if we needed to. Uh, we, we, there's another publication that we, that we published, I think it was last year, maybe the year before, where actually about 70% of patients on 5 milligrams maintained 5 milligrams, and uh, about almost 90% on 10 milligrams maintained 10. So in the, in the extension, we did have the ability to adjust, and there were some patients in whom 
I, I, this, so this is personal opinion because I don't really have the data, uh, in whom I did adjust the telephone upwards and they did have a response. Um, the question about redu reduction, um, I would certainly, I mean, if 10 milligrams were available, it's just been, a, been um, uh, approved by the FDA Advisory Committee for, for ulcerative colitis, not by the FDA, but the Advisory Committee, with a 10 milligram BID dose. So if, if I can get my hands on that and, and if I do think a patient might do better with 10 milligrams, I might, I might do that. And if the patient actually did really, really well, yes, I would think about reducing to, to five milligrams. But well, I don't have data from, for, for that. Okay, but it's helpful again for the clinician to think about that possibility. The other interesting thing from one of the graphs was that the fatigue scores didn't change even in those people doing well, whether you initiated, discontinued, steroid methotrexate, do you think that's because fatigue doesn't bear relation to inflammation or that the measure, the facet, is pretty poor? So that's a very, very interesting question. And it's actually something I've been thinking about for three weeks. Um, we're looking at the PRO data uh, out of oral standard. And uh, one of the analyses I asked for uh, was uh, what is the correlation between clinical efficacy, uh, CDI or DAS28, because we had both of those in the study, uh, and uh, the PROs. And it turned out that all of the PROs, other than pain, other than pain, had a correlation of less than 0.5, including fatigue. So the, the manifestation, clearly the patient PROs are important, but they don't track with disease activity. So I think that you're 100% right that the fatigue um, is, is, is something different than how we measure inflammation. Um, and it may be the instrument. Um, it, it may well be the instrument. But, but I've noticed this in other studies as well. Fatigue doesn't track the way that you'd expect it to attract. It doesn't, it doesn't track as well as pain tracks. If the patient... Uh, has a seed eye that goes from 42 to 8, and the pain's going to be reduced 90%. Uh, but the fatigue may, may be reduced some, but, but maybe not enough. I, I think it's, it's the way that we do it. Okay. It's clearly feel better. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, hypothesis-generating study. Do you have any take-home messages for the practicing clinician about discontinuation of either drugs, or initiation of either drugs in people not quite doing well, and, and some advice about those timelines that you talked about, three months, three years. Yeah, so let me repeat what I said before. So if I have a patient who still has active disease in spite of methotrexate, and I use the same metrics for the methotrexate as I do for the TOPA, I add TOPA. And if the patient is doing well uh, at uh, three months or much improved, then I continue to tell for the methotrexate. If the patient goes into remission, a CDI remission, an SDI remission, and it is sustained, um, then I will consider tapering or discontinuation of the methotrexate. There's probably 70% of patients, 75% of patients can do that. 
Um, if at three months the patient isn't doing well with the combination, I'll think about adjusting the methotrexate or switching mechanism of action. The um, one thing I don't do is if the patient goes into sustained remission is to discontinue TOPA rather than methotrexate because that doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's cheaper, but if the patient wasn't doing well on methotrexate and I add TOFA and now the patient is doing well, it wasn't because of the methotrexate, it was the TOFA. So it's the TOFA dose that I will, that, that, that I, that I will adjust and do adjust. In my clinical practice with TOFA, uh, having a number of patients with TOFA, it does work. It works in you know, 70, 80% of patients. And I would think that about uh, three quarters of those actually do wind up on monotherapy. Um, the first drug I'll discontinue is, is steroids, obviously. Fair enough. Now, looking into your crystal ball for the next five years, Roy, do you think the oral small molecules will become drugs of first choice for RA, given that there's five under development at the moment and the uptake of them around the world? Yeah, so it's all about cost, isn't it? Um, so it's all about cost, but you said five years, right? Yeah. So in five years, I think TOEFL loses its patent. Um, and then if there are generics, and if generics are reasonably priced, um, we've shown uh, in oral standard that in a methotrexate incomplete responder, the addition of tofacinib or the addition of adalimumab is the same. Uh, you yeah. get the same results from groups of patients. So if I give, uh, and the safety profile to me is relatively similar. There may be small differences, incidence of side effects, uh, so herpes zoster may occur a little bit more frequently with tofacinib than adalimumab, but it still but it still occurs with adalimumab. So the frequency may be a little bit different, but not great. Um, giving a patient a choice of taking oral medication or injectable medication, and um, if uh, the oral is cheaper because now you have generics, um, yes, I think that they will be the drugs of choice but it's all about the cost. And it's going to be interesting when we have to rewrite all those treatment guidelines and go for the most effective drugs rather than the least expensive drugs. Thank you very much for your time today, Roy. Greatly appreciate it. You're welcome, Peter.